today we will uh, be tackling um, the first part of what is typically called hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, um, and this is very important stuff, obviously. Um, so we're just going to get an introduction to it today, uh, and then around 8 o'clock or so, we're going to uh, have a, a brother here named Shannon Hurley, who uh, is a missionary in Uganda. Uh, he's was became friends with the Danigers when they went over to Uganda to do their adoption of their two little ones. And they met there. Tom obviously met them when he was, uh, met Shannon when he was over there as well. There are others in the body here who support him because they're friends or have connections otherwise elsewhere. And so he's going to just share a little bit about his ministry, what's going on there, and give you a chance to hear that. And we had several, many of us had dinner with him last night, and the elders are going to get to know him a little bit more after Bill this morning just to find out a little bit more about him because there was such a, the guys are so encouraged by knowing him. Um, so he's back in, in fact, a week from now, he'll be in the air flying back to Uganda to head back. He's been in Southern California. He's a, he knows SMED. Um, he's, he's a graduate of the same place that we came from, and uh, he is sent out by Grace Community Church in L.A. where um, MacArthur's at, and, and so there's a lot of like-mindedness and stuff, but we're going to get a chance to hear from him this morning, and uh, so we'll just let him share a little bit about what they're doing and, and what their ministry is. So we'll uh, use our time up until about 8 o'clock to go as far as we can or want to, and um, in regards to hermeneutics. What you uh, have in front of you today in terms of the worksheet, if you don't have one, you're going to want one in the middle of the table. It is um, the first nine pages of this 60-page booklet. Uh, I have a friend. Uh, his name is Joel James. We met way back at the University of Nebraska, way back in the day. Uh, we met because we didn't know it. He lived a, a floor above me in the dorm, and I had just become a Christian like within a year before. And uh, he was a clean-cut boy from South Dakota. I wasn't. And um, we were didn't know it, but we were walking to go to FCA together. We met in the hallway of our dorm and walked down the stair or met in the stairwell. And so we walked down the stairs and walked out, and then we just kept walking across campus. FCA, the meeting was clear on the other side of campus. And we kind of did this thing like we kept, like, are you following me? We didn't know that we were walking the same place. And he told me later that the whole way there, he was praying for guts to share the gospel with me. Because it was obvious that I wasn't a Christian by the way that I looked. <laughs> 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 we became very dear friends and uh, still are to this day. He uh, went through the, he got his doctorate a year ago in the doctorate of min, uh, ministry uh, or exposition thing that I did at Masters. And he is a pastor slash missionary in South Africa. Uh, he handles, uh, he's doing a great job. He's been there for about 10 years now, I think. And anyway, he is the one, his, his preaching project is basically this. He, the, the men that he serves in his body are men who will probably never go beyond the English language to lead the church uh, from the Hebrew or the Greek. And so what he wanted to do is he wanted to give them 
the strongest equipping they could get with the English text. And so I said, whatever, and so he turned, he, he basically turned this into a book. His, his uh, project was, a, was to write a book that would equip the men of South Africa where he's ministering um, to interpret the English text well. And I said, well, every man in America needs to have that first if, if he's going to be leading in the church. And so he gave me a copy of it, and we have permission to use it. And there's a whole bunch here. Um, and so today and um, the next, our last build that we have together, we're just going to work through the first nine pages of it. And it goes into all kinds of grammatical and syntactical stuff on how to really carefully observe God's word well. Um, and you can actually get this from us if you want <clears throat> for just a couple of dollars. If you just give us a couple bucks to cover the cost of you know, the paper and, and um, putting it together like this, we'll, we'll give that to you. Um, in fact, um, Sven and I were talking. Um, we would encourage you to, if, if H3 is where you're going and, and headed along with the elders' desire for you to go in that direction, um, we would love for you to at least have looked through this and worked through this before you even get there or as you're getting there. Because SMED, throughout the course of a year, week after week after week, is doing this as um, a major part of each um, of his classes that he takes the guys through. It's on learning how to um, handle God's word in the English the best that you can. Um, so uh, we're, we're just going to give you the first part of it uh, in the, today and, and the next Saturday. So um, I'm really excited about this because my friend is he's a very clear thinker. He's a very clear writer. He, um, he makes what is important and, and sometimes difficult to understand, easy to understand. He's always been that way. He's probably one of the clearest preachers I've ever known in terms of you never walk away not knowing what the text said. Uh, he's, he's very, very gifted by God and uh, a dear friend. And I hope you never meet him because he can tell you things that I don't want you to know about. So. <laughs> we go way back. But you know what? If he does, I'll just tell you things about him that he doesn't want you to know. So there. And I would do it in Christian love. Be in the love of Christ. Before we um, um, start, I want to give you take a look at your quote. Uh, Bernard Ram read a classic book on biblical interpretation, the whole matter of hermeneutics, and this is from that book. And it's a good reminder. It is very difficult for any person to approach the Holy Scriptures free from prejudices and assumptions which distort the text. That's true. That's honesty, that we are influenced by our own hearts and sin and the good things that happen and our theology that we've already derived from the text. We're influenced by that when we come back to the text. The danger of having a set theological system is that in the interpretation of Scripture, the system tends to govern the interpretation rather than the interpretation correcting the system. That's a very important statement. And that is not to say, well, then therefore the answer is to not be committed to a system. That's not the right answer. The right answer is, is fine, be committed to a system. Uh, but be committed to the system that a, a right interpretation of Scripture leads you to. And we talked about this last time a little bit. Always, 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 when you come back to the text, 
you come back shaped by your theology, by your system of theological ideas. You do. You come back. But the controlling line of authority is not in your system. It's in the texts of Scripture. And you must resubmit what you theologically conclude back to it again. That doesn't mean you have to start all over again and say, well, God is holy. Well, when I come back to the text, I must pretend like I don't know that. And therefore, let Scripture reestablish this all over again. No. But you must always hold it in your hand and come back and let Scripture continue to add to it or take away from it if it needs to and reshape it and grow it and build it, okay? It's very important that you understand that. Um, and this is why I think it is so important for, and, and I'm very committed to this at this church, I think the elders are too, that in our training of men, theology does not come first. This comes first. You must be the right kind of man who comes to the Word of God to meet with God in your heart in through the Word. That needs to be well established because then theology done rightly with right interpretation is going to, is going to be your friend. But oftentimes when a young man gets, or, or men in the church get excited about, oh, I want to learn, I want to I want to be used for God, and so what we do is we take a systematic off the shelf and we sit down together and we start going through that, and, and the next thing you know, you've trained a guy to be committed to a system, and he doesn't necessarily understand the relationship between the system and Scripture. And therefore, when he comes to Scripture, Scripture must submit to a system. Scripture exists to advance his system. And guys in every theological camp do this. It, it, there's no one boogeyman system that does this. Every system is capable of doing this. And so theology is very important. But theology um, can, in a sense, kind of be suspended for a little bit and say, let's talk about how we as men need to interact and view God's word. Okay? Um, so anyway, that's what we're trying to do here. And I want to back up, and I want us to think again. We have two times left. I have two opportunities left to make the rut in your brain a little deeper, and the rut in your heart a little deeper, so that it won't erode over time. So I want to talk about discipline one again, the heart. Okay? If you look on the back of your folder, if you brought it, um, it says again, the leader must be disciplined to prayerfully shepherd his own heart toward Jesus Christ through the word of God. Um, I want to give you a parable, if I might, to talk about this a little bit. Imagine that you're lost in the desert and you just ran out of um, the last bit of water that you had. And you are completely lost, completely disoriented, unaware of where you are, or where help is. Um, how important is it to you to be rescued? Duh, right? <laughs> I mean, that's it. There's only one goal on your mind, and I need to be rescued. I need rescuers to come and get me. It's for you, if you've run out of water and you're in the desert, it's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. So there's one focus, there's one goal. Um, if you, in that situation, have a satellite phone, ah, it's wonderful. How important is that phone in your situation? Oh, my goodness. It's everything. 
huge. Because why? It is the means to your end, to being rescued. That will put you into contact with your rescuers. The, the fact that you have a, a satellite phone in that situation and it's functioning as a means and not the end, that doesn't lead you to neglect the phone. It doesn't lead you to be careless with the phone and lose it behind a cactus somewhere. It leads you to guard that phone in one sense like it is the end. But it's not the end. It's the means to the end. You honor that phone. You guys know where I'm going, what I'm talking about? And discipline one is about your heart. It's about your heart that is prone to wander out in deserty places where you will die. And your one goal is to get your heart near its rescuer, its deliverer. It's Savior. That is much more, guys, than a matter of life and death for somebody out in the desert. It's a matter of heaven and hell. It's an eternal matter. That is your one focus. That is your one goal. There is no other goal for you. Your heart must be near its rescuer, its Savior. And discipline one and build is all about you and I understanding the precious, precious word of God rightly as a means to that end. Okay? It's a means to that end. It is the means to God who is your only end. Now, to interact with the word without having your heart come near its rescuer is about as crazy as being out in the desert and tinkering with the phone but not calling the rescuers. And it's stupid. You would never do that. You would say, what, what, is, what on earth are you doing? As if the phone was it's just important to have the phone. I've got the phone. I'm going to die, but I've got the phone. When we interact with God's word, the whole point is to meet with the one who rescued us, to meet with God. Why, why make a big deal about this? Because I think at one point in my life, I was somebody who said a lot, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. I grew up around guys who... I was discipled by guys early on in my Christian life who were like, it's the word. It's the word. And why did they, why did we talk about the word like that? Because everywhere we looked, even in the Christian church, the word was being beat down and put in the back and it was in a dusty, dark corner and the church was trying to do church and be something in this world without the word. The word was being demeaned and so it seemed like the right reaction and response to, to grab it and go, the word, the word, the word, and it is right. But what you mean by that is everything. 
the thought is to exalt the word because it is obviously being demeaned in culture. But I think a lot of times guys can begin to speak about the word as if it's the end <coughs> and not the means to the end. And just like the phone in the desert is understanding it rightly as a means to the end, it doesn't mean that you treat it with negligence. It doesn't mean that you become careless with it. It means you treasure it. Oh my goodness. Well, listen, guys. God's intent with his word is that it is most honored and glorified when it is seen as the means that he gave to reveal himself to your lost heart. Okay? And we cannot improve on that. The way that you honor God's word, the way that you exalt God's word is by making it and seeing it for what God intended it to be. It is the means to him. Where else shall we go? For you alone have the words of life. Can't go anywhere. John 6. And it's, it's too easy for guys in our situation, in our theological cut, to easily just kind of make this subtle shift, like all of a sudden there's this huge talk about the word, the word, the word, the word, but did we mention our great love for the one who rescued us and is our savior? Do we know this one that it reveals? Now, I don't ever want to assume that. I assumed that in my life. And in my original ministry coming out of seminary, I assumed that, well, just because I had the word open, I had the God of the word. I never want to assume that again for me personally. And I never want you to assume that just because you're talking about God's word or that you're reading God's word, it automatically means you do. You have to be disciplined to understand that, oh, I need to push myself to be meeting with God. And does that sound a little bit subjective? Sure it does. But I'm not after a subjective experience or anything like that alone. I'm after, you need to meet with God. The point is, these words were given by him as a means to reveal him. He is the end for which your heart was created. Use it rightly. And if you understand God's word as a means, it will not lead you to dishonor it, to dethrone it, to, to, to be negligent with it. It will only lead you to honor it rightly. And we cannot improve upon that. Um, I obviously feel a little strongly about that. Uh, I want you to feel strongly about it. I want this church to feel strongly about it. If you don't have discipline one in terms of coming to the word of God to meet with him in his word, you have nothing to say to anybody else. You have nothing to say to anybody else. And you better not start discipling somebody else because you're going to make them what you are. Don't do that. Open God's word as if oh, we get to meet with God. We get to know him. He revealed himself to us through words. Think of your own illustrations to, to try to make this be obvious to you, to your own soul, to your own, to whomever you, you're, you're ministering to. A love letter from your wife, from the girl of your dreams. I mean, you wouldn't sit there and treat that like a lot of Christians do the Bible sometimes in terms of we just need to do a word count we need to you know I want to look at the tenses it's interesting she only used uh, past tenses and 
Look, all that's important when you're analyzing scripture, but not as an end. <laughs> okay? And I'm not poo pooing tenses, it's very yeah, important. Seminary, you know, it's called <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that can be the case. That can be the case. So, anyway, I don't need to hit that horse anymore. Um, if you have that, guys, you're ready to step into your home. And the household relationships, that they will be influenced. Those people that you live with will be influenced by what you are. Because they will sense that this is a man who meets with God. Much like Moses came down from the mountain and the people were scared because it was obvious he had just spent time with God. How did they know? He was glowing in the dark with the radiant glory of God as it was you know, reflecting off of him. They knew he was a man who was with God. There's a sense in which we need that again today, that that we influence others with a heart that has met with Jesus Christ through the word of God. You have those kinds of things going. Discipline three makes all kinds of sense. Oh my goodness, the impact of ministry in the church and outside the church will be huge. You need to be striving, discipline four, for qualifications. To be a qualified man, either as a deacon or an elder. And so you are aware of those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, and you are pleading with God to do in you what only he can do. And you will be satisfied with what he does in you. If you never, if you never become a, a man qualified for deacon status or elder status, let it not be because you weren't diligent, or because you weren't thoughtful, or because you were sloppy. Let it be because God has other intentions for you. Mm. You need to be able to then deal with biblical, theological, practical issues. I would throw our hermeneutics thing in Discipline 5 here. Um, and then, because you're at Grace Bible Church, we have a specific vision and purpose. You need to be a man who, with all that you are, helps advance this vision and purpose for this church. So, as it reflects scripture, hopefully. Any questions or thoughts or comments to add to that or concerns? Russ? speak a little bit to like the dependency we need to have on the Holy Spirit when we approach the Word because I think sometimes like within our tradition we sometimes downplay uh, the need to be dependent upon that ministry the Holy Spirit to our hearts in regards to understanding. Yeah, and we are going to talk about that um, actually first. So let's pray and then we'll go right to answer your question. Well, no, unless there's other questions or comments. So I'll suspend yours for just a moment. Zero. Uh, discipline six. Which is that? Uh, I know you were saying like it's basically just for our church here. Now, would you say we also have to have like a personal mindset in that, just with our own, uh, I guess, ministry? How you fit in that, or what do you mean, like your own philosophy of ministry for you? Uh, yeah. Like, is that always something that we're going to be like be a part of, or is that something we're going to take with us as well elsewhere? Is what I'm asking. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a let me back up for a second. There's a sense in which if we're the the what we're communicating through our vision and our purpose, there are other ways to communicate that um, that might that, that sound a little differently. Um, that churches use. Hope, I, I think that you would see if a church is really trying to pay attention to what scripture is revealing and what a church should be and what a church should do, what its purpose is that you would hear a lot of similarities, even though it's worded differently. Um, 
I would never impose what we've come up with here that every other church needs to articulate it exactly this way. However, what do I want to hear them talk about? I want to hear them talk about the glory of God. I want to hear them talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. I want to hear about a transformed life. Now, say it however you want. I want to hear about that we're mindful about the gospel mission to be drawing in, building up, sending out. You may talk about it differently. The church I came from in California, our philosophy of ministry was, was primarily three things. It was upward, it was outward, and it was inward. Um, upward in the sense of it was all about glorifying God. He is the king, he is the ruler, he is the Lord. And it is about us inward as a body building each other up, and it's about outward going out. It was about exaltation, it was about edification, it was about um, evangelism. Um, and that's great. I mean, you hear a lot of overlap in stuff like that, and that, that's fine. Communicate it however you want. Personally, for you, you know, you're, you're probably come up with something that for you that um, I would encourage you not to try to necessarily reinvent the wheel. Be flexible. Latch on to what you're driven by, that you see, that you're <coughs> discipled in, and that you see in Scripture. Hang on to that, and when you go someplace else, take that with you. And what you've got to do is whatever your convictions are as they're being formed in you when and if God moves you someplace else what you're doing is you're looking for a church where there's a match and a fit uh, from what you see in God's word so I don't know if that answers, does that answer your question? Uh, well what were you thinking? obviously not, it didn't answer your question What's <laughs> no, I, I mean I think it did it did somewhat, I'm thinking like for like our like if we have personal ministry outside or like even like at the home um, like with our Well, I mean, that's what we're saying as elders. We're saying this isn't just for the corporate church. I mean, we want you as members of the body to, if this, if you see this resonating in your heart from Scripture as well, then be about the glory of God in your home, the cross of Jesus Christ, and a changed life uh, at work, in, in the workplace. I mean, these are the things that drive you everywhere. Uh, does it always look that way? Do you always summarize it that way? Not necessarily, but... But they capture the, the big ideas of, of where we're at as the Church of Jesus Christ and what we want to try to accomplish corporately and individually. Yeah. Revolution statement is is almost more of a theological statement than a vision statement because they're they're scriptural. You know, these are the commandments of God to do these things. So you know, some yeah. church might have a vision statement like you know we want to pursue athletes by going out into you know, sports ministries. Right. And, you know, that's a vision that you don't have to carry out or carry to another church or carry out personally because it's just a way of accomplishing what God wants you to do. But yeah. we, I think every church has to have the... If, if they're missing one of these, they're not following Christ's commandments. So. Yeah, they, they, they may be a little more um, meandering or wandering. And, and we're trying to use vision... And when I remember going back through this and thinking about vision and purpose. And if you look at what other churches have put together and call they, they use the word vision, they use the word purpose they use the word philosophy of ministry, they, and I don't even know what that means anymore in all these different things it all sounds like they all mean the same thing, your philosophy is your vision and it is your purpose and so we've tried to I've tried to summarize it in, in the sense of it's our vision in terms of what we set our sights on we only <clears throat> want to see what scripture is revealing and sees and wants us to see and, and this is one way of trying to summarize in a big sense what, what the scriptures are revealing that is the glory of God and the cross of Jesus Christ which saves us and transforms us and so yeah that's that's propositional it's theological it's, it's biblical proposition there is a God of glory 
He glorified himself in the cross of his son, and it is also that we might be changed. Does it say everything about the battle? It doesn't say necessarily, clearly, everything about the end. It doesn't say everything necessarily about the beginning. It, it can't say everything, but this is what we have tried to say. The purpose side then tries to be more, therefore, we are moved based on what we have set our sights on to a purpose, to action. What is that? Drawing in, building up, sending out, that kind of thing. So, yeah, you have to be really thoughtful about what, and you have to be clear. What do we mean by vision? What do we not mean? That kind of thing. So, anyway. <coughs> Any other thoughts? Well, we should pray. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these guys. Thank you for this whole year. Well, I can't believe we only have um, two weeks left, two meetings left. And I pray that you would lead us today and guide us in such a way that this would really be fruitful and that, Father, this would be, uh, this would be used by you to strengthen these men personally, that they would um, feel just all the more equipped to handle your word um, to honor it in the way that you want it to be honored as the glorious means to our glorious God. And um, I pray, God, that we would then become a stronger church because the men in this church are committed to your word and interpreting it carefully and normally. So, Lord, please meet with us this morning uh, as Russ has already talked about and asked. Uh, we are in desperate need of your help by your spirit. And we pray that you would give him, supply him in all the fullness that he is so that we might um, not think that we can employ something man-made within us to understand your word, but that we need your help. We need something that's divine. Um, we need the spirit of God. And we are needy and dependent upon you to meet with us and to guide us through your word that we might understand it rightly and therefore understand you. And so be with us this morning and give us great fellowship. Help um, Shannon and Tim to get here safely in a bit and use that time as well to your glory in this church, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Open up to the presuppositions. We're not going to spend a ton of time, but it would not be right for us to pass over these without mentioning them. Without mentioning them. There are, this is page three, there are presuppositions when we study scripture that are important for us to not neglect. The first is we presuppose that the Bible is God's written revelation to man. Um, and thus, the 66 books of the Bible given to us by the Holy Student, student, Holy Student, where did that come from? Holy Spirit constitute the plenary, inspired equally in all parts, word of God. Now, Plenary means complete in all respects. Okay, It's unlimited, it's full. So it is the complete in all respects word of God. And it is inspired in all of its fullness. There's not a corner of it that doesn't have inspiration from God on it. And by the way, what do we mean when we talk about it's inspired? We, we don't mean that men were inspired to write in the sense of how we talk about, well, that was very inspiring what I saw or what I read. It was very, it, it moved me. We're not talking about that. We're talking about divine breath pushing through a man with his personality and whatnot. Now, um, 
if you look at 1 Corinthians 2, 7-14, you can look at that one on your own. That's all about the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, that it is the Spirit's job, and you can even back up to um, John 16 and 17, where Jesus talks about the role of the Spirit in the, the lives of his 11, is going to be to bring to remembrance everything he said. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is primarily, in this age in which we are, to reveal God's word, to reveal the words of Jesus to us, to, in 1 Corinthians 2, help us to understand spiritual things. Because a, a natural man can't understand them without the Spirit, because they're spiritually appraised. And who knows the mind and the heart of God except who? The Spirit of God. And so we want to go to him. And I, I hope that you hear that when uh, on Sundays when, when, when we begin God's word that we pray and that we ask for help um, because it's not just, you know, well, that's tradition, that's what we do here. It's, it's because we absolutely must and need to. Go to um, 2 Peter chapter 1. We're talking about inspiration, not just um, illumination. Uh, what we just been kind of talking about is we must be illuminated as we look at God's word. But we're talking about number one here, in inspiration. Second um, Peter one, verse twenty. That's First Peter one. We get Second Peter one. But know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The men would have never spoke from God unless they had been moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is absolutely necessary. Um, and he is um, a major part of this Bible. Well, he is the reason we have this Bible, because he was at work. <coughs> Number two, the Word of God is an objective, propositional revelation. It's very important. It, it's full of propositions. It's full of statements um, that are true, that are objective. They're outside of me. They're outside of you. They exist whether I believe them or not, whether I'm alive or dead. They're there. Um, they are verbally inspired in every word. 2 Timothy 3.16 they're absolutely inerrant in the original documents, infallible, and God-breathed. We teach the literal, grammatical, historical interpretation of Scripture. That is explained more on, on pages 5 and following. We'll talk about that. We'll get to that a little bit today. Which affirms the belief that the opening chapters of Genesis present creation in six literal days. Um, it's very important. Objective propositions... And, uh, and this is just a presupposition stated up front that we think that there is a literal approach and we'll put parameters on that literalism when we get there in a few pages. It's not a wooden literalism by any means. Um, number three, the Bible constitutes only infallible, uh, I'm sorry, the Bible constitutes the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Infallible means obviously incapable of erring, it provides the only incapable of erring rule for life. Okay? A rule of faith. It's the only uh, incapable of erring 
faith of what we believe, and it's incapable of erring and telling us how to live. Um, we do not worry about whether or not what we believe is right or wrong from Scripture because we know that it is infallible. It, it tells what is right. Um, you have wonderful passages there to be able to look up as we go through that. God spoke, number four, in his written word by a process of dual authorship. We just saw that in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Um, the Holy Spirit so superintended the human authors that through their individual personalities and different styles of writing, they composed and recorded God's word to man. And they did that, without, that happened without error in the whole or in the part. Um, and that's what makes scripture so awesome is that you have, uh, clearly Luke is writing a little differently than John. He's writing a little differently than Peter. And then you got Paul. And the kind of men they are and, and what God providentially determined their... Is that rain? It's rain. Okay. Oh, it stopped. See, it's good. Um, we don't want to have an Easter mud service tomorrow. That's the deal. So, anyway. <coughs> No, okay, man. Not... <laughs> but it could be raining here and nothing happening at Tempe Beach Park. So it could be sunny this afternoon. That's absolutely right. It could happen. Um, anyway, we were talking about something far more important than rain. Um, we're talking about dual authorship. Yeah, you just have a variety of personalities that play into it. The personalities do not overcome the Spirit of God and handicap the spirit in what he's wanting to reveal. No, the, the personalities of the men are a tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit as he reveals perfectly everything he wants to reveal about God and who God is as he gives words to them. Um, number five, while there may be several applications, this is a huge presupposition, while there may be several applications of any given passage of scripture, there is but one true interpretation. Um, and there may be many Christians all over the planet who say that there are, no, this is the right interpretation, no, this is the right interpretation, no, this is the right interpretation, but we know in the mind of God there is one. We may not all agree on what it is, but the, the point is, is there's one interpretation, but from that may spring several applications, which we will talk about in a little bit here. The meaning of scripture is to be found as one diligently applies that literal grammatical historical method of interpretation under the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. There's our need. It is the responsibility of believers to ascertain carefully the true intent and meaning of Scripture, recognizing that proper application is binding on all generations. Um, yet the truth of Scripture stands in judgment of men. Never do men stand in judgment of it. All right. Any comments or questions on those there that we saw in the presuppositions? Ben? Question on um, do our, our, our view where of the Holy Spirit's role and interpretation and application is, is the Holy Spirit's role primarily in guiding us in our interpretation mm -hmm. or is there opposing views that it's role of the Holy Spirit is primarily in the role of application, application. and I don't just elaborate on that at all what, what, if you don't mind can I turn it back to you and say what do, what do you know how, how do you understand that and, and what would you 
Well, I think the thing there's the thought that certainly with a literal historical grammatical approach to scripture, there's the thought, and certainly, like, as you were talking before, when people who are, who are about the word of God but not about the God of the word, it's very easy to get in the mindset where I can fully interpret what, the, you know, apply the science of hermeneutics to interpreting the, the word of God and, it can, you know, and, and may possibly rightly arrive at a correct interpretation of it, but without the spirit of God actually using that word and convicting me that, and it's in that, in that viewpoint that the role of the spirit may be primarily in applying the scripture to us. So, is that correct, or is the role of the spirit also deeply tied to the actual interpretation? Yeah. I, I'd be uncomfortable divorcing him from either. Um, do you guys understand what he was explaining? That was very clear and, and helpful. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we don't want to... There, there was a movement back, you know, when, the, when, uh, when science was, was moving into its heyday in, in, the, in the 1800s, the scientific method came upon the scene, and the world bought this line from science, and there's aspects of it which are very true, um, that if you run through these steps, these <coughs> methods, the science, uh, um, the scientific method, and you follow all of that, what you pour out on your lab table when it's done is truth. We got the truth. And all you have to do is have rules, methods, and you get truth. And there's a sense in which I think Christians saw that and they saw the impact that that was having on the world and then said, well, we got our little scientific method that we use for scripture. And all you have to do is one, two, three, four, five, or down to 20, however many rules. And all you have to do is just do these, shake it all up in the test tube and then pour it out on the table. You got truth. You got the meaning. And we have to be careful to not be as sterile as that because that's not what it's about. It's not to say we don't want rules. We don't want to be guided. We want rules. We want to be guided. We want to be careful. We want to be consistent when we move from one passage to the next to the next to the next. But we don't want to speak about it in a way in such that it's so mechanical that all you have to do is these steps and you automatically get it. You don't need any, you know, there's really nothing else to it. Now, you, you must always be in dependence upon the Spirit of God. Um, to understand, to be illuminated, so that you might see what you need to see, and so that you might also have it be applied as well. So, good point. Anything else? Hero. Um, this might be one for afterwards, but I, Omri and I were talking the other day about just like uh, prophetic passages. Yeah. So it's like in Psalms when David is speaking, like Psalm 22, like it's David speaking about a scenario he's going through, but yet it's applied specifically to the crucifixion. Um, How does that? Yeah, that is a subject for another time. Okay. <laughs> that is um, there is that is a, a very important subject on um, in terms of how much do you um, how do you understand the New Testament's use of the Old Testament? And the good thing is, is there's a lot being written on that right now. Uh, recently, some stuff came out. Um, Carson's been working on that. Carson's been big on that for. 30 years um, plus. There's some really great stuff to read and to be stretched on, to be challenged by. And it is probably, in my estimation, probably one of the most difficult things to, to try to get your hands around. Some people would like to make it very clear that, oh, it's easy to understand. There's 
there's an apostolic hermeneutic, and all we need to do is do it, understand how they use the Old Testament, and we got it. Well, the problem is, that, does Matthew do that every single time? And does Paul follow? And how, did they? There's there's all kinds of convoluted things to get into and, and to work it out. And in my defense, at my oral defense, a week plus ago, the guy at Master Seminary who holds his one view up and holds all the rest of the world accountable to it asked me a question about it. And I didn't realize what was happening. Um, and I, But I didn't really, into my project, I didn't even really get into that whole subject. And so I kind of just said I didn't really get into that subject. And it saved me <laughs> from a long line of questioning that I wouldn't even have been able to get into. So anyway, we'll have to talk about that more. Um, and you will get into that in H3 more. But uh, Ben brought up that you, you talked about in terms of the Holy Spirit role and, and, uh, and, and interpretation versus application, which in some ways it's not necessarily always on couples. But um, I, I had a class with scripture, that it's not, it, it wasn't written to be a code that can't be deciphered. And there's a sense in which anybody looking at it gives clarity to it, whether they are, have a spirit or not. And then there's a clarity that only the spirit of God brings. Um, so you have to, again, it's very important to define what you mean by that and what you not mean by that. And you have to be a, a diligent, diligent workman. It doesn't. You can't put this under your pillow, guys, and sleep on it, and wake up the next day and have done nothing. You can't expect to not read this and then know it. You've got to read it. You've got to study it, because that's the only way you'll know the God of the Word. So anyway, let's go over to the next page. Can we do that? Page four, section one. Principles for interpreting Scripture. We're going to talk about two wrong ways, and then what we would say is the right way. Through the centuries of Christianity, Bible students have practiced many wrong methods of interpreting scripture. Here are two common ones you'll want to avoid. Number one, the allegorical method. An allegory is a story in which the people and events of the story have hidden or symbolic meanings. 
those who interpret the Bible allegorically bypass the clear historical meaning of the text. Meaning, when they say historical, they mean where it's rooted in its historical context. They bypass that for something else. And they make imaginative associations between their Christian experience and the persons or events in the text. Now, an allegory is a wonderful um, genre of literature. And the whole point is that in order to understand the allegory, you need a key, a deciphering key outside of the text to understand what the text means. Right? That's what's beautiful about it. It's a great tool. That's not what God did. The key is in the words of the text. And um, for instance, let me give you examples of what has happened throughout um, uh, church history. Rahab's red cord that she hangs out the window, the wall of Jericho. Um, There have been all kinds of sermons done where, and as she hung that out, that's the blood of Jesus Christ. That's reference to the blood of Christ. And now see, is there anything in that context that would make you go, oh, there it is. It's Jesus Christ in his blood. No, you needed something outside of that passage to make you come to that conclusion. The passage itself did not lead you to that. Okay? People do this with numbers, too. Um, I heard Carson explain once, um, you, you know, after the resurrection, all the guys are out fishing, and they catch a number of fish, and it's actually, there's a number given for them. I think it's like 153. 153. And, and he, <laughs> he collects stuff that, like this, where people explain, well, 153 is the it's triangular number of 17, and 17 is 10 and 7, and 10 and 7, 7 is the number of completeness. 10 is the, the number for the Ten Commandments. 7 can be broken down into 4 and 3. The 4 is the, the fourfold pillar of the church. The 3 is the trinity. And so what is being told here by Jesus as the fish are caught is that the church exists, is sent by the trinity. It is the fourfold foundation of the church to take the Ten Commandments and go with them into the world. Now, that again, (laughs) let's close in prayer. (laughs) Now, again, that is, that requires a key outside the text brought in to make something that's not there. Yeah, so you don't. You know that that's primarily an allegorical approach. He gives uh, there's a great example here. For example, one church father interpreted the parable of the Good Samaritan by making the following associations: the traveler was who was attacked represents a person seeking salvation. The robbers represented Satan. Naturally, the Good Samaritan is Christ. The oil and the wine the Samaritan administered to the injured man's wounds picture the Holy Spirit and forgiveness. The donkey is the gospel because it was the vehicle that carried the injured man to the end, which is the church, where the man recovered. Look, we laugh at it, but this is true. I mean, it's what people do. And they still do it today. After church some night, go home, turn on channel, what is it? Is it 18? 21. And they do it all over the place. And these are local guys. These are guys in this valley who do this kind of stuff. I mean, this is not a joke. This is the way that people are handling Scripture. And what are they doing? They're bypassing the clear historical meaning of the text. I listened yesterday afternoon on the way home 
to a talk radio guy who was interviewing Rick Warren. Rick Warren has this whole thing that, you know, his whole purpose driven everything he's got. Um, one of the things was for missions. And he said, all we have to do is just go back to what Jesus said in Luke 10 and Luke 9 and, and the other passages, and, and missions makes total sense. For instance, what Jesus said, don't take a purse with you. Don't take a money belt with you. What does that mean? When you, the biggest problem that we have when we go on missions is we give, we think we can solve everything by giving them money. Jesus says, don't give them money. I'm driving, and I'm not kidding. There's nobody else in my car, and I'm yelling, no, 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 as I'm driving. That is not the meaning. Look, that's not necessarily an allegorical interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, that's not what the context determines in that list of things that they're supposed to do. That's not, it doesn't carry the intent of what Jesus was after, what Luke was after as he's writing it. Ah, oh, we don't want to do that. Okay. Although Jesus taught the parable to answer a specific question, we're back to the Good Samaritan, who must I love as my neighbor, that is ignored. The church father found a deeper mystical, not readily apparent meaning for the passage by means of imaginative association. Let's evaluate the method. The allegorical method obscures the true meaning of God's word. How? By ignoring what the writer actually said. It's very subtle because all you're doing is you're, the Bible's open. That's all you're doing is you're looking at the Bible. You're looking at the very words, and yet you're not even close to the meaning. It's not like it, it's a very subtle uh, approach that the devil has. Because it's, it's, it's not like we said, well, look, I don't care what this means. And we throw it over there and we walk on and we talk about something else. No, we walk around with this open and we say, this is what it means. And we're doing all kinds of allegorical stuff. It's very deceptive. And um, the second point there, since the plain sense of the text is ignored, there is no means of checking whether an allegorical interpretation is true or not. The cord hung out the window. It's Jesus' blood. I have no means of checking that if that's the way we're going to go about it because what if the next one comes along and says it's something else? There's no, there's no check or balance on it. An allegorical interpretation tells you more about the interpreter's imagination than it does about God's word. Now, in, in many ways, my guess is most of us probably are not going to deal with people necessarily who do that a whole lot. You'll come across that once in a while. And you'll, you'll come across it in small group sometimes. You know, somebody very well-meaning will have read something. Maybe you've even done this. You'll read it, and you'll, oh, you've got this wonderful idea of what it is. I remember one time reading, and I was reading back through Genesis, and I came across the ark, you know, the, the whole flood, and I just remember, oh, my goodness, Jesus is the ark. And he's carrying us through judgment and, you know, I remember thinking, being excited about that. Why? Now, now here's because it's a theological concept. And what are we doing? Yeah. We're pushing that theological concept onto Scripture, and it's it's a right concept, but Scripture is now muffled. It can't speak what God intended it to say. This is so important, guys. So important that you understand. Take your wonderful, what you're passionate about, Jesus Christ delivering us to his kingdom. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Now, come back to Genesis 6 through 8 and let Genesis 6 through 8 say what it says. About deliverance, about judgment, about whatever. But don't necessarily push everything back into it.
Do we ever use an allegorical metaphor? Do we ever in in scripture? Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think so. The only reference to it is Paul in Galatians, and the the first thing that has to be asked, I think, in that whole section is whether or not Paul means the same thing by allegorical as we mean by allegorical, and I don't think he does. I think there's a good case that could be made that he's actually looking at something more typological. Um, if you want to more on that, I can point you to some stuff, but no. Let's talk about what, where we, an interpretation of scripture, probably more where we live. It's the number two, what it means to me, or neo-orthodox method. And, and, and sometimes these can overlap. What it means to me is this allegorical, fanciful interpretation. This method comes in two different packages. One is scholarly and one is popular or common among us. So let's start with the scholarly. The neo-orthodox, or what is called the reader response method, and that'll be defined here in a minute, so hang on to that. But, but hold on to that phrase, it's very important. Reader response method of interpreting scripture is based on a particular view of the Bible by scholars. Modern theologians don't believe the Bible is infallible or inerrant. They don't believe the Bible in itself is God's word. It is merely a record of how men and ages past experienced God. Therefore, it is suggestive, God's word is, not authoritative in our day. So your experience of God might be different than what Moses or Paul experienced with God. And so you read it as a suggestion because what you've experienced might be a little different. And so what it means to me has as equal weight as what it meant to Moses. And so it's a suggestion to come alongside mine. In fact, mine brings some kind of a, a bearing on Moses' experience of God that, you know, just as much as his brings a bearing on mine. <coughs> now that happens at the, at the high scholarly, high tower level. For the neo-Orthodox theologian, the Bible isn't God's word. It becomes the word of God when you have a significant experience while reading it. Truth is not the concern. That is different for every person. What's true to me is not true for you. The issue is how the words strike you as you read them. That's when it becomes God's word. That's the whole point for them. What the original author wrote is merely a tool that assists you in shaping your own concept of God and how to please him. The view of This view of God's word is very popular in today's postmodern, everyone is right, no one is wrong, academic atmosphere. There's a whole wing of the church on the move out there going called the emergent church, and this is their way of handling scripture. And therefore, somebody standing up actually preaching, saying, thus saith the Lord, that is so offensive. Because, I mean, you're going to, I mean, you haven't even considered what I think of the word. I mean, it's crazy. Um, and all it is is old-fashioned liberalism uh, with tattoos and piercings and all kinds of stuff. That's all. Uh, one, one, more, one more thought here. This view of God's word is very popular. Uh, the reader's response determines the meaning, not the words themselves. Look at that last sentence in that paragraph. The reader's response determines the meaning, not the words themselves. That's what we mean by reader response method. It doesn't have meaning until I've read it and I respond to it. Okay? Now, is that you? Yeah. I hope this is a surprise. How does the term neo-orthodoxy come to describe this? And if you want, we can answer it later. I'm just curious. That, that's a... Not that I know. I'm not really know. Yeah, you know what? Now, um, it's thrown out there a lot. It seems like when you put neo on the front of anything, you're, you're um, 
demonizing it. Uh, so it's a sense of orthodoxy. Um, well, here, let me give you an example that might be related. There are guys in the emergent church who are making their claim that there should be no preaching in the word of, in, in, in churches. Because actually, if you go back to um, what was truly orthodox, even prior to the Reformation, there were things, good things in the early church fathers that they were doing. It wasn't about preaching. It was more about dialogue. And so it's a new version of what they're calling orthodox. It's neo-orthodoxy. It's a new orthodoxy. They're trying to recover something and, and make it new again. So I think in principle, that's the kind of idea they're... They're trying to claim themselves as orthodox, but they're really, or something new that's uh, an orthodoxy recovered that's new in a sense, but it's, it's truly not. That, that would be my initial explanation. I think there's probably a very much better one that I could talk about with you. It's a great question, though. Um, this method of interpretation down at the bottom of page four is also widespread on the popular level. Now, we just talked about it in the scholarly level. Let's talk about it where you and I live. Um, it's reflected in the motto, what this verse means to me is, and if we're not careful in that, what, we, what we're saying is God's intent is really not the concern. The historical context, the theological context is really irrelevant. Only how it immediately and intuitively strikes the reader matters. In such circles, diligent study is, can be frowned upon even vilified, but that, that's kind of the extreme. That doesn't even happen. This happens among people who really are diligent and study God's word. The reader's intuitive, unstudied response determines the meaning, not the actual words themselves. So it's evaluated up on page five. It's based, on in, uh, it's based on an errant view of the Bible's inerrancy and infallibility, especially at the scholarly level. At the popular level, do not look at, at, the, at the scholarly level they're motivated by the fact that this isn't even scripture. This is even inspired. Do not assign that to everyone at the popular level who says, well, what it means to me is, don't take that and necessarily impose on them. Some of them may be right there, but not everybody is. People can make this error and believe truly that the word of God is infallible. Um, the Bible is divine truth, not suggestive, not authoritative, human experiences the divine truth is authoritative uh, these methods fail to recognize that the intent of the original author is what determines the meaning of the document the memo means what the boss who wrote it says it means what the bible meant to the human authors as God's spirit moved them to write is what the bible means we don't impose our meaning on what God said we work to discover the meaning he initially and eternally intended I never watched the office because I'm a Christian I'm just kidding. But um, I saw a, a snippet of it. I don't even know characters. I don't even know who they are. It was hilarious at one point because one guy's boss told him, he said, hey, can you give me a rundown on blah, 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 blah. And he said, sure, I'll get that for you. And he goes back to his desk and he's like, what's a rundown? <laughs> what's a rundown? And so he goes around the office and he asked other guys, tell me what a rundown is. Use it in a sentence. Oh, my God, he just keeps saying that. Use it in a sentence. And he goes, uh, I, he gave him a rundown on the numbers. Use it in another sentence. <laughs> and he's going on and on, and pretty soon it's like hours have gone by, and he hasn't even started it because he doesn't know what it is, and he's too embarrassed to go back and ask the guy who gave it to him, what did you mean by that? 
He doesn't even know what a rundown is. But he won't go to the very one who's the only one who can tell him what it means. He's, and it's, so there's just this huge tension, Bells. I didn't see how it actually ended or resolved itself or didn't. But anyway, that's, you, know, there's, you don't try to determine the meaning of something outside of what the author meant. The author had a meaning when he said that. And, and it, yeah, had a meaning in mind when he said that, and you do the best you can to go find that. All right. Scott, yeah. Real quick. Could could the popular what was that? What was the term? The, yeah, the popular level could that be a misapplication of um, the presupposition, the fifth presupposition that says that we're coming to the word with that says there's there may be several applications. Sure. And we take that and we impose that onto our interpretation. Yeah, we, boy, the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes, and we'll, we'll talk about this as we go through the methods. One of the biggest messes that is happening right now in hermeneutics today is the merging of application and interpretation all in one. And what you've got to do, and you may not understand this all right now, but here's what you need to remember. You pull these things apart and you give them some space in between. Application is not interpretation. And interpretation is not application. And if you are thinking, wow, well, you know, this applies to me differently than it did to them, so therefore I guess that must mean that there are different interpretations for that. That is not true. There's one interpretation, and there may be a multiple of applications. We'll talk about that here in a second. But yes, it very well could be a part of it. It's just a misunderstanding of that. And so what you need to remember is this presupposition. There's When, when you write a note to your kids that when they get up they're supposed to do one, two, and three. You had one, two, and three in mind. You didn't have seven things in mind. You had three things in mind. Or you just had one thing in mind. Whatever it is. And you expect that it was clear. You wrote it with very much in thought. I'm writing this to a ten-year-old, so I'm not going to write like I'm writing to the elders. I'm writing to a ten-year-old. And I want it clear. And it's understandable. And you write it. And uh, you don't want them coming back and saying, well, I did three other things instead. I mean, you expect, no, there was one meaning I gave. There was one, it was clear. Um, well, look, how much more so God, who doesn't ever falter in his communication of himself. He's always right. He, he always communicates clearly. So, yeah, we, we go off of that one interpretation. Now, in terms of application for people at different ages, different time periods, different Situations, it might be very different. But there's one interpretation, one meaning that the author had in mind. Let's talk about the right way, carefully and normally, and then we'll take a... Uh, I, I may, is it okay if I maybe push right up until 8? We'll take a break then. Can you guys go in our 15 minutes? Okay. If you need to get up and move around, feel free to do that. Um, the right way to interpret the Bible is to read it as carefully and normally as possible. I really like the way that he said this. Carefully and normally. Um... In fact, 1 Timothy 2.15 commands that we be careful readers of God's word. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. While not forgetting its unique characteristics, that it is the God-breathed word, we must let the scripture mean what it means based on what the words say. Do you understand that? It means what it means based on what the words say, what the author meant. It's based on authorial intent. It's not based on what it means to me. Interpretation is not a magical or mysterious process. It is reading carefully and normally, not looking for fanciful, allegorical, or personal meanings. For instance, 
let's say I am deathly allergic to honey. And then I come across Psalm 19, verse 10. That the word of God is sweeter than honey. Well, let me tell you what that means to me. It means it's death. It is death. Okay, I have to take whatever is going on in my head, and I have to say, it doesn't matter what's going on in my head. What's going on in David's head? It means what he meant by those words, not what my experience is or what anything like that. Okay? Um, of course, since the Bible is God's book, to understand it, we must seek God's wisdom. So here we are again, wanting to be very dependent upon God. Psalm 119, verse 18, explained how um, the psalmist back then was very dependent. Open my eyes, God, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Having sought the necessary grace to handle the divine message, I love this. Oh, I mean, this, I would put this on a t-shirt, make a Christian bumper sticker, let's tattoo it on, no, let's don't do that. Whatever. A carpenter who measures twice, cuts once. That's, that's good. You measure twice, but you cut once. You do your homework, you understand this? What are there, construction guy? <laughs> you measure twice, you cut once. Okay? Uh, we must accurately cut straight the words and sentences of Scripture. Uh, and the 12 principles on the following pages are the basic guidelines for reading God's word carefully and normally. Okay? Questions? Scott, I'm trying to up on one thing. Yes. Maybe this is going back to the question from before, but yeah. I'm thinking about like when uh, the disciples are going through the grain field and picking the heads and, and uh, the Pharisees are said uh-huh. to Caesar. Pharisees. Complaining why you know why are you allowing me to do this? And, you know, it goes back to the Old Testament where the oxen are plowing the fields or eating the grain as they're don't muzzle the oxen as they're plowing the fields. So that's not the clear meaning of the text as it was written, though, right? But he's he's judging the Pharisees for not knowing the intended meaning of the text. Well, if you're um. If you're talk, I would need to make sure I, I know which passage you're talking about. Matthew 12 doesn't measure, doesn't that, that setting is not the oxen. Oh, is it not? I'm not not that one. <laughs> and you might be mixing parables. I don't okay. know. Um, I would need to look at the parallel passages. What? He tells about David. Oh, okay. Yeah, he 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 goes back to talk about it. you know David was given the bread to eat and that broke the the law and the priests break the law when they eat the bread and. Okay, I was thinking anyways about where that thought was going to go. Is that Paul, the yeah. preacher? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, yeah. Paul, oh, yeah, yeah. what's really cool about that is Paul is actually quoting Luke, and he calls it scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, it's not the believer. Yeah. Under a rightly carefully and normally, the right way to the Bible is pretty carefully guided. And as normally as possible, I see parentheses and I'm asking for me. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Normally um, is actually number five on the next page, on page six. And so he, that is one of his principles that he fleshes out. So we're, probably not, we're not going to get to that today. We'll get to that next Saturday, but I encourage you guys to read that. And uh, he's very clear about when something is, uh, what, what normal means uh, in getting to it. Jesus says he is the door. We need to treat that in a certain way that we are not in a wooden literalism, but in a, well, normally what it would mean is a, a real door, but unless it doesn't make sense that way. So we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay?
Any other thoughts? Okay, now here's what I want to do. I'm gonna, um, I want you to go to Luke chapter 1. And in the remaining 10 minutes, I want to let you see something. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. You don't have any room to write this down on this paper anywhere, really. But I'm going to give you, before we look next time together at the 12 principles of interpretation, I'm going to give you the one suggestion before the 12. Okay? This is my suggestion to you before the 12. Um, and this is it. Read the whole Bible. Over and over and over and over again until you die. Read the whole Bible always. Never stop. If you fall off that track, get up, dust yourself off, get back on that track, and keep reading the whole Bible. The tendency for Christians is they read their five favorite books. And James is the one that everybody loves. I love James. He's just so practical. I know what to do. I go to that book and just tell me what to do, and James tells me what to do. Great. Um, God was a little broader than James, and we need to make sure we understand a little bit more than that. And, and let, me, let me give you an example. Verse 5 of Luke 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. There was a priest. Huh. Verse 6. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requ- oh, commandments, requirements. The priest, it's commandments, requirements. Verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing the priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple. Of the temple. There's a temple. Temple, there's... there's Incense in the temple that a priest has. He's in division. These commandments, okay? And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel, an angel of the Lord, the an angel of the Lord. Wow, there's, there's an angel of the Lord there. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. Uh, blah blah blah. Go on, go on, go on. Verse 17. Angel's explanation. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah. Oh, wait a minute. Just stop there. From verse 5 to verse 17, do you know what Luke just did? He presupposed that you would know Scripture from Exodus to 1 Kings 17. 12, 13 verses of Luke. But if you're going to understand it's 12, 13 verses of Luke, you better know something about priests, about their role in a temple. prophet, Elijah, it presupposes that you know it. And if you can't get your carcass out of bed to read the Bible, guys, don't become a teacher. Don't become a teacher. Take that aspiration and throw it away and serve God another way. Serve God another way. But don't want to be a teacher. Read the Bible. Read all of it. Don't read all of it once. Read it over and over and over and over again. Guys, read the Bible. These rules and principles of interpretation will not help you very much if you have not read the whole Bible.
And don't read it so you can be right. Discipline one, read it so you can meet with the God who came up with the idea of priest. What is he after? A priest in a temple. What is this God like who would want a temple? What is he after? Why would he be about these things? Um, read the whole Bible. Okay? There's 12, 13 verses. From Exodus to 1 Kings 17, a prophet who ministered and served under Ahab's reign, all the way pushed back to a prophet named Moses who's setting up a priestly division, Aaronic and Levitical priests, and everything in between. Yes? Can I add one word to that? Absolutely. These young men who want to be the teachers, go to Israel. (laughs) Go to Israel because it comes to life. You know, how far is Mount Mount Carmel where Elijah destroyed the prophets to where he ran to hide? You'll see it. It comes to life. The word, since I've been to Israel, comes to life. The smallest words, let me give you an example. I had a preconceived notion of what the upper room looked like, you know, in the Lord's Supper. And I got there, and I said, this can't be it. This is a large room. I had not read carefully Scripture because Scripture, the Lord commanded, go in and find a large room, the upper room. And I missed that word, large. And I had a misconception of, in my mind, it's from a picture on a wall that I grew up with of what the upper room looked like. And it was totally wrong. But come to think of it, why was it to be a large room? Because the 120 gathered there on the day of Pentecost. So go there and see it, and it will... I was reading the other day, Revelation, and it says, Christ will return and put his foot on Mount of Olives. And it will split north and south. And I go, wow, I, I remember that. But the, the valley will go, when it splits, what's going to happen? It doesn't say this, but it will split in the, in Mount, the Holy Mount, which is where, who's going to be there at that time? The Antichrist, the, the false temple. It'll split. Hmm. Boom. Yeah. It comes to life. So if you're going to be, uh, and you want to plan to be a teacher, sometime go to Israel and experience it. And the, and the good news for you is, is if, obviously, what Tom's talking about is, is go there personally. Um, until then, or if that never happens, uh, let men in their books and their commentaries take you there mm-hmm. and describe for you. And that's very important. And um, still take, make sure all those observations you see, they come back around and they're resubmitted to God's word and what God's word means and what it says. Um, and, and so that's very helpful. And you know what that, you know what that's a, that underscores another uh, principle of interpretation that we'll talk about um, as we go along, and that is God revealed himself this is his intent at a, at a specific time, a specific place, a specific culture, a specific language, um, and all of it. He embedded the revelation of himself in that in the past. And so there's great reason to want to know about the historical setting. Um, Don Carson talks about a, a great example of uh, Laodicea. I wish that you were either hot or cold. I'll spit you out. But you're lukewarm. That's why I'll spit you out. 
And we've got all kinds of ideas of what that means, but what they've actually found, the Laodicea, is it was the one place where the only water that was piped in was just tepid and it was, it was rancid. But the other two cities near it were known for their hot springs and known for their and also for their cool water. And so it, it was hot. It was beneficial when it was hot. Be, the water was because it was people went and it was soothing. And it was beneficial when the water was cold over here uh, because it was refreshing in the heat. And um, but this tepid water that's got it's not even safe to drink and lay out of sea. I can't use it for anything. You spit it out of your mouth. And people think, well, what that means is God would actually what God prizes is is that you would either be a hot on fire for him or just a cold-hearted enemy. Really? So God values you being a cold-hearted enemy more than kind of lukewarmish towards him? <laughs> wow. No, the point is, is go back, find out what's going on in the, in the setting, in the places the best that you can, and see if they bring any enlightenment to what's going on. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's very clear. Look, if, if, when the water was hot, it was useful. When the water was cold, it was useful. But when it was this, it wasn't. Church, you're not useful. I wish you were useful in some other way, but you're not useful to me this way. Um, so anyway, yeah, there was a great reason to go back and see whatever it is we can see. And praise God that we live in a day where um, you can, uh, if, you, if you can never get there personally, which would be great if you can. You can be taken there by some very um, good men, thoughtful men. So let's take a break. Can we do that? And then we're going to come back together. By then, perhaps uh, Tim Dagger and Shannon will be here and we'll uh, talk a little bit more. So get a refill. Go blow on the grass out there and make it dry. For the, for the remaining time, uh, I want you to be able to hear from Shannon Hurley, who's here. And um, he's going to just kind of share a little bit about who he is uh, in his ministry in Uganda. And uh, we'll draw some things out of him along the way, too, so you can understand the connection with us. Maybe you can explain a little bit about how you, what the connections you've got with, you know, Dave and Cammie and Ben, and also with, with Tim uh, and Tom, as they were obviously in Uganda and whatnot. That'd be great um, to get that connection. And then just, Sean's going to share about uh, the ministry there, the sufficiency of scripture ministries, SOS, and what they're doing in Uganda, and their passion for God, and um, his gospel, and people there in the church. And um, so I'm just going to give him the rest of the time. And if you guys have questions and would like to ask something, feel free to do that. Um, he would invite those, I know. He invited him from us last night, and it was great to interact with him. So feel free to ask questions along the way, and Tom and I may do that as well as to give him a, maybe to share something that we would like to have the guys here that maybe not be on your mind. But anyway, so Shannon, come on up and share. All right? Shannon Hurley, master, something like that. He's a good man in spite of that. That's all I'm talking about. <laughs> Hello guys, how are you? This is a cool, you know, what a church. 150 people strong and this kind of leadership. Uh, I don't know what you guys are doing here, but uh, hopefully I can learn from it and, uh, and continue to do the same. But this is really remarkable. And a church this size, putting out this kind of leaders, 
uh, it has a, a ex an incredibly bright future. So that's really neat uh, to see. I'm Shannon Hurley. I'm in Uganda, and uh, and you know I've been there three years. Um, I happen to be friends with uh, Ben. Ben I met uh, actually when he was in high school, and I was I was straight out of seminary and. Uh, we were discipling each other back in those days and just kind of learning what ministry is and, and uh, encourage each other. We, we started in the Book of Romans, and uh, really through meeting with Ben, I, I learned what discipleship was going to look like really the rest of my life. And um, with that, I know Mueller over here. Just actually, I know his family, good friends with uh, Chris, his, uh, his uncle, and then uh, Tim, obviously, he came and adopted from Uganda which and stayed with me a good portion of the time, just having fellowship and just loving his heart. And when Tom came along, it was kind of like uh, like being able to sit sit around with my seminary friends and just talk about the Lord and and, and our desire to, to know God and love Him. And so uh, that's been a joy. Smedley, and I know half your church, I think, but uh, Smedley, uh, I knew him from uh, Texas. His folks are from Texas, and uh, where my in-laws went to the church, and so. We got to have fellowship around that and, and enjoy uh, being together and uh, getting to know each other, from both from a family standpoint as well as personally. So, and I just we golfed with Smedley the other day, so uh, we know him even better now. You know. <laughs> but, uh, hey, yeah. is he a good golfer? You know what? Uh, <laughs> be honest. I know it's on tape. <laughs> Seriously, be honest. You know, we we know him to be somebody who. Do yeah, and he is very much that way. But for the purposes of not letting any unwholesome word come out of my mouth, I probably shouldn't answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He looked good, though. So what you're saying is you should still be Yeah. But knowing Smedley, if you give him a week at it, yeah. you know he'll he, yeah he'll be on the PGA tour. So uh, anyhow, I would love uh, you know part of of being a missionary you know is you have to go around and share everything that you're doing. I would love to do it in the spirit of, of ministry, and uh, so I would love if you would do me the favor. Let me just open your having you open your Bibles to Romans chapter one, and I'll I'll just share quickly my heart and then. Uh, and then share what we're doing as it relates to Paul. And uh, I don't know if you've, uh, if you're familiar with Acts chapter nine and Paul's, you know, great um, calling to the ministry. But in Acts chapter nine, Paul says this. He says, Paul, I, I have a mission for you. He says in verse fifteen, he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, where I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. I can't imagine being Paul. Gentile world, the whole Gentile world, unbelieving. Paul, you're to go to them. Being a Jew, that's like impossible. You know, you couldn't even have dinner with a Gentile. Now I want you to go and I want you to reach the Gentile world. Paul knew his calling it was great. Even in Romans chapter 1, verse uh, verse. Verse 5, he says, Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. His mission, go to the Gentiles with the, the word of God. Gentile world, 
dark. Doesn't get any darker. Doesn't know the gospel. Has no understanding of it. Completely pagan. Right? You go to the back of your maps and you realize Paul actually was unbelievable. Kicked can. Unbelievable mission. The best missionary ever since his time, right? The rest of us just aspire to like do one uh, tenth of what he did. Unbelievable missionary. How did he do it? In Romans chapter 1, I think we get a little glimpse into his heart, and I'm just going to quickly give this to you. After his introductory thing of introducing who he is, introducing who, his uh, recipients, uh, if you know every letter, it starts with the author, then the recipients, then the greeting, then the prayer, often to the gods or, or something like this. After that, after he says, first I thank my God through, there's the prayer for God whom I serve in my spirit, verse 9. Always, da, 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 da. then in verse 11, he starts sharing his heart for the Romans. It seemed like there was some sense in which the Romans thought he didn't love them. Why haven't you come, Paul? You keep talking about coming. Why haven't you come? And he wants to share his heart with them. He wants to express his love for them. And, uh, and here he does that. Verse 11, he says, I long to see you. Paul's first, what made, his, made him an incredible minister, he longed to see people. He longed to minister to people. He didn't hide himself in his house and uh, not get out. He always wanted to be with people. Secondly, you see, he says in, uh, in verse 13, I did, not wa- I did not want you to be unaware that I have often, what does it say? I have often, oh, come on you guys, help me out here. I have often planned. I think Paul had a plan as to how he was going to reach the Gentile world. Let me just say this. I believe missions is twofold. International and local. And uh, and the reality is, is as you guys are being trained, you want to have a local mission. And uh, and how are you as a community going to influence Phoenix? How are you going to influence this world? That becomes the question. But Paul says, I have a plan. I have planned to come to you so that I may obtain fruit among you. Why did he want to go to the Romans? Because he knew if I go to Rome, the rest of the world will hear the gospel. And so he came up, I believe, with a plan. Actually, and that plan took him going back to Jerusalem, getting in trouble with the authorities and saying, I'm a Roman citizen. And he gets put on a boat all the way to Rome. And, uh, and the third thing we see there in verse 14, he says, I am under obligation to the, both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, I think Paul lived on the obligation given to him by God. He must go to the Gentiles, and he lived with that upon his back. And if that's the obligation, if that's the calling God has given me, then I must go. And I think that drove Paul and continuously humbled Paul. And uh, and we would all be recognizing our own obligation before God to declare the the excellencies of Christ, 1 Peter. He made us... He made us chosen race and a, and a holy nation so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him. Right? And uh, so we all have the biblical calling before God to declare the excellencies of him. Uh, in this area, how do we want to declare the excellencies of him? And for me in Uganda, that's what my job is. I need to declare the excellencies of God. For me, I am taking and applying these things in my own life, in my own ministry in Uganda. In Uganda, what I've said is, look, I want to go to the Ugandan people. I can't rest until the Ugandan people know the word of God, have implanted it within their hearts, and a movement for the cause of Christ is going in Uganda. And uh, I think we don't accomplish the great things Paul accomplished 
there is because we don't dream, we don't vision, we don't live under obligation, we don't plan as Paul planned. There is no way he could have had the impact in this area without thinking through the issues and being driven. What would drive him to go to the suffering he went through? Only a passion to fulfill his mission. And, uh, and I would just say, and I, I give all that as an introduction to my own heart and my own passions in Uganda. I have a mission. How can I reach the Ugandan people? And, uh, and it's not about me. Um, it's, it's not about me. It's about God and, and him moving among his own people. But he always uses voices. And uh, how can they hear without a preacher, right? And how blessed are those who bring the good news. Well, you and I have more training than the re- most of the world. And not only more training, but more incredible training. And uh, the stuff that you guys are getting here is invaluable. And, uh, and the question becomes, how? now you have a greater obligation to make it known, right? It's not just for us to know and then store in our heads, but it's to be known and then proclaim it outward. And uh, so in that regard, I said to myself, hey, I got to go and I, I got to go someplace where I can be used to the greatest. And the Lord opened up a door for me in Uganda to work with pastors. There's three aspects of our ministry, uh, and I'll give them to you quickly. There's biblical training, community outreach, and evangelical voice. The heart and soul of what we are doing in Uganda is biblical training. And this is my plan to reach Uganda. So uh, Paul had a plan, and, and we make plans, but then he directs them, right? And we're always open allowing him to redirect us in different things. But this is our plan to see God work in Uganda. In biblical training, which is our heart, and I'm sorry I'm speaking fast just to make sure that we have enough time. Uh, in, in biblical training, we start off with conferences. We have, uh, we, The Lord has opened up a door for us to work with any diocese within the Anglican Church and the whole Baptist Union. All the Baptist churches in Uganda, the Lord has opened the door through the president. <laughs> of the Baptist Union for me to work with them. They've given me six years to do uh, to bring conferences to their denominations. That's over 2,000 churches in the Baptist and the Anglicans, we can go as far as we're, we're just choosing two dioceses to work with among the Anglicans, which is around another 600 pastors. So 2,600 pastors is what the Lord is allowing us to work with. You times that by 50, and that's about how many people our ministry will ultimately touch through multiplication. And uh, so our conferences, we strategize how we can reach and, and get these people to think biblically. And it's the same stuff, really, that you guys are doing here, talking with Smedley around golf. You know, that was when he wasn't in the bushes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talking, with, talking with Smedley, you know, you, what he's doing here is the same thing we're doing there. And our hearts just totally reunited in regards to training and how we train. The Bible, the Bible, and the Bible, Right. And uh, you don't need to be trained in, in, out here. You need to be trained right here. And uh, But what we need to do with these guys is get their thinking away from all this other stuff. This God spoke to me, prophecy, demons. You know, people go on an evangelistic trip, and what happens is they go to cast out demons. And um, and did God send us to cast out demons or to, to proclaim the gospel? I say, you can cast out a demon, the next minute, as soon as you turn around, he enter, re-enters them, you know? Unless the spirit of God's in them, it doesn't protect them anyways. So, um, and what we've done is we start off with a high exalted view of God. Then we start with the supremacy of Scripture. We want to show that there is this God on the throne, and He speaks. 
And uh, thirdly, then we do a, a, the Glorious Gospel Conference, where we take them from Romans 1 to Romans 4, just like we did with Ben back in the day. And, uh, and then, then the Transformed Life, Romans 5 to Romans 8. And the same format, they're interacting with the text and coming up with the truth uh, as we just explain it, right? And then, uh, and then from there, we then do the Unlocking the Scripture Conference, where we're given hermeneutics as they're doing, trying to get them engaged in the text, learning how to interpret it for themselves, but all these things are getting them off of this other rubbish and onto the Bible as the sole authority uh, in their churches and, and passions in their lives. And then the last conference we're giving them is the Great Commission. But these conferences are kind of an introduction to our ministry. Um, and uh, But with that, you know, as well in biblical training, we have a model church, right? Everything flows out of the local church. Well, we want to model in the church. Everything needs to flow out of the local church, and that's what we're doing there in Uganda, having a model church where we're in the community we're in, we have a church in which we're empowering the people in that community. Um, then, but once we train them in these conferences, they're saying, "I need more." I mean, this is just this is just the I, this is just the little bit of a teaser, if you will. And that's why we want to have a school in uh, in the future that will train up these pastors so that they can be effective communicators in their churches and. Uh, and so that's what that's what the biblical training area is. However, we we live in a context of a community. In in our world, we can uh, we can go without empowering the community. Our community we don't even know our neighbors, right? <laughs> community that we have no sense of of what community is. The African setting, it's not that way. And uh, community is everything. Family is everything. Community is extremely important. So we try to say, well, we want to model what Christianity is. So we said, now how can we reach our community? How can we have an impact in our community? And I think these things can even work cross-culturally in their own manifestations. But So there's three aspects to how we, we want to reach our community. One, we want to reach them um, through activities. Let's just have activities where we involve ourselves in the community. And uh, maybe that's a soccer tournament. And, uh, and actually, I love talking with Chris Mueller uh, he was he at one point in, in uh, Spokane wanted to have a basketball tournament, you know, where he could uh, just influ- be around unbelieving individuals, and uh, you know, which would then make a connection for the gospel, you know. But through activities is what we wanted to say. We we'll have a soccer tournament or a movie nights. You know, all these village people who live in little mud huts come out to our property and they watch, you know, Cinderella Man on on. Uh, uh, on a movie, just to show them that we love them, just to show them we care for them, get them involved in, in our lives, which will then open the door for them to be involved in our ministry and as well our local church. And uh, and then and then uh, not only community activities, but as well we want to provide educational opportunities. Uh, most people in Africa, um, are, their education level is extremely low. You always know somebody that has an education or not by whether they speak English. Because all education is given in English. And so um, our community does not know English, which means it's totally uneducated. And uh, our, we moved specifically to a really uh, rural area so that people can, um, you know, can be, uh, so that people, we can love people in, in kind of the real context. Instead of bringing pastors to Kampala, we want to bring them to their own setting so that they can learn ministry in a context which, uh, in which they live. And uh, our community, so poor, drunkards, you know, nobody knows whose child belongs to who, you know, 
and uh, and this type of a thing. We've come in to, and, and began to encourage them, but we want to put a primary school where all the people from the community can come to that school. They can learn educationally, but as well as biblically. And then in the process, they then go back to their homes, take Christ back into their homes. And we're meeting a, a huge need within the community and loving them in that way. In the process, they're getting the truth of God. And the last area in which you want to reach the community is through um, emergency health care services. And, uh, and with those emergency health care services, um, someone comes basically dead, brought to your door. Actually, last night I, I got a call right after we were done, and uh, a lady just had twins. And uh, they were way premature in an emergency situation, so we had to take those two little twins right over to the, to the hospital so that they could be treated so the kids don't die. And, you know, and she had it basically right there, I think, at home. And, uh, you know, just kind of crazy stuff, you know. But the community knows we're there. If they need to be loved in a special way, then that's great. We always have to turn around the people that, you know, I, you know, I need a Band-Aid for my finger, you know, but, uh, you know, or the malaria test. We try and turn that stuff away. But emergency, uh, life or death situations, we want to be there to help the community. And what happens is the third area of our ministry is evangelical voice. And that is as these pastors are trained and as people even in the community are trained up, we want to then give them a platform to speak to the country and uh, through forms of media. What I find fascinating is how we've given media over to the pagans. We've given them over or, or to the false teachers. And the charismatics own, and I think you say, now I say charismatic, but uh, really, usually, it's the, the one, the charismatics who are giving the prosperity gospel and all this, they own all the media. And uh, I think evangelical Christians need to get to that media. I, uh, the reason I got that passion in my own heart is because I watched a documentary on Hitler and, uh, and uh, how he transformed the German people to go against the Jews. The way he did it, he shut down all the churches and he took control of the media. And, uh, and so I want to shut down all the churches in Uganda, but ours, no, I'm just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> I want us to take, take control of the media, provide a second option to these guys, write in the newspaper, speak in the radio. So not me, but I want them, the Ugandans, because we don't want to build a ministry around Shannon. We want to build around the nationals. Uh, and then thirdly, um, let them speak on television, whatever we can. Maybe it's even a billboard, I don't know. But we want to give them a venue in which they can communicate truth in Uganda. So that's what our ministry looks like. That's what our vision, our plan is. And uh, at the end of the day, what we want to see happen is what it says in First Peter. And then I'm going to open up for questions because I think that would be more practical. Is, is that a good approach? Okay. But I just want to read Peter. And I just, I've been encouraged in my own heart this trip. I did a missions conference and the, the theme of the missions conference was this. And I just thought it was so good. He says in First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking about who we are as believers, right? Uh, and a people for God's own possession. We are all those things. And then he gives the so that. And remember, so that is a purpose clause, right? It's functioning to give us the purpose. Why did he make us a holy nation? Why did he make us people of God's own possession? To do what? I'm, what was that? I'm sorry. <laughs> so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. That is our mission statement. 
And uh, we must declare to the world that Christ is on a throne. Fascinating verse, and let me just take you one other place. And that is in uh, Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Uh, how does it start off? You guys have that memorized? Go therefore. Now, the question that when you see a therefore is what? What's a therefore, right? Uh, Smelly, you look at Smelly over there. I think he's told you that one before, right? <laughs> but we never look and see what it's there for. What is it there for? There's a statement given in verse 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Really, I am the king. I am the exalted. All authority has been given to me. I am the Lord of lords and the king of kings therefore go and make disciples of me because of who he is you go and make disciples of him proclaim him as king and you as but a servant and uh, the great commission is the same thing declaring the excellencies of Christ uh, to our world and our mission is to go out proclaim him show people that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords and get people to bend the knee in humble submission to the observance of all things in which he's commanded, right? And uh, and so that is the great commission which you and I all share and, and the like. But in Uganda, that's what we want to do. And the way we want to do that is help get them to eat the word uh, of God. And, uh, you know, and I always, the way, the way we're doing it in Uganda is we try and think, first... My, my thinking is with discipleship, we've got to get them so that they have a taste for the Word of God. Once they have a taste for the Word of God, we've got to show them how to study the Word of God so that they're not dependent on us. And then at that point, once they begin to taste the Word of God and begin to study the Word of God, they'll embrace it and they'll begin to proclaim the Word of God. And what, what I you know, learned from those early days, we called ourselves the Romans Brothers and because uh, we're all just learning it. And as we learned it, you know, Ben has always had a hunger and a passion for the Word of God, and it's because he tasted it and saw how good it was. And um, anyhow, so that's a little bit about our ministry. I wanted to provide half the time to allow you to ask questions because that's where practice is. Did you guys understand that? Okay, cool. Uh, but I would, as well, I'd encourage you. What is your plan to reach your communities? You know, this church, if this many people went out with a plan, took your wives along to reach your community around this church, impact. If this many people, if you all got one, you've just, you know, added how many people to your church? And just one. And, uh, I mean, you guys, we've got to get out there. That's our mission. That's our calling. That's what we're about. We're not here just to learn. We're here to go out and make known and uh, and then draw people in and disciple them for the cause of Christ. And we, we've even come up with a little discipline. Take somebody from what is religion through the gospel, and I'll provide that to Smedley and, uh, and Scott. If you guys want, to, want that, and just bring somebody through and say, you know what? Our problem is we, we're all religious, but we have no idea what this book says. Can we go through something together? You know, it's as easy as that, but get out in your community and make Christ known. And, uh, and these guys are going to say, you know what, There's people. this person's called because they're going to watch you in ministry. You're not waiting to be like sent out. You're already sent out, and you're already in the community. You're already doing this. That's the guy I want to go to seminary, and we want to get him freed up to do it full time. But um, anyhow, I hope that that makes sense uh, that way. All right, any questions?
Yes. Why are you in Uganda? Wonderful question. You know, I always had a passion to come to the U.S., uh, to, to minister in the U.S. and help the truth about the gospel known. It's not about a sinner's prayer. Uh, it's about surrendering your life to, to the Lord and uh, repentance and faith in Him. And um, But what opened me to Uganda is the fact that the more I ministered here, the more I realized they didn't want it. And, the more I, and then you go over there and they're like, please give it to me, please give it to me. And at some point you, you feel deep conviction, like why am I shoving it down people's throats that are too busy for it anyways when there's a whole nation that's longing for it and just needs someone to teach it to them. So that when I got exposed there, I went I actually, I, I went in college, that exposed me. I went back after uh, being in the business world for eight years. And when I went back that second time, I went back to close the door to Uganda, but when I got there, uh, I went and I, I did it like a, they were doing evangelism in this one area in the north, and I went and uh, part of that evangelism thing, they wanted to have just some seminars given. And they gave like six seminars, and you know, I had just come in, I was just there visiting, and so I, I said, you know, I'll take one of those seminars. And uh, and then, you know, and then the last one, they had one remaining was on widows. You know, I didn't even know what a widow was. You know, I'd heard about that term, but you know, we don't know widows really too much here. Um, but in Uganda, they know widows. So I took the widows, and, and uh, they said, oh great, the widows is tomorrow morning. You know, and it was like nine o'clock at night, and. Thank God I had MacArthur study Bible so I could like cheat and uh, <laughs> you know but but so what I did was I studied all night for the the widow thing next morning I said I have nothing to tell you about widows but the word of God has a lot to say on the subject and I just explained what the Bible has to say about widows and people were like I can't believe the Bible has so much to say on the subject and uh, they asked questions for an hour or so afterwards and then uh, then then at the end of that the guy that was supposed to speak the next subject said Shannon can you do me a favor I just want to know what the Bible has to say on this can you teach my subject I ended up speaking all the subjects and the people that were supposed to speak them gave them to me that they can hear what the word of God says those question and answers went three and four hours afterwards we had to stop them just so we could eat because it was three o'clock in the afternoon and uh, everybody was dying of hunger and I'm like Man, you just don't get this back home, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, you know, so that then caused me to say, it, you know, and at the end of that, you know, people were coming up saying, you know, can you come here and help us? And and I just said to me, I would be in a rebellion against God to not respond to the needs that are in this country. And that was in my own conviction, in my own heart. God didn't tell me anything though. It was just my own, you know, deep sense of I need to do something to help out these people. And, uh, and so that's what brought me to Uganda. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about the uh, kind of the spiritual status of the pastors that you're ministering to? You know, kind of where they're at. Yeah. Why they need it. Well, and uh, <laughs> you say spiritual status, and in some circles, it's what spiritual status? Uh, because many of these guys, you know, they need jobs. Their community, you know, they're, they've been going to a church and. They, their pastor dies, and so they fill in the role, you know. It provides a little bit of an income um, and this type of thing. But when they fill it in, they don't go and go to school first. They're, you know, just Joe Bob on the street, you know. And, and he says, okay, you know, that's, then he starts teaching. And five years go by, ten years go by, and, you know, and he's just that pastor. And really, that's what happens. Zero, literally, you guys have more training than those pastors. 
if they could come here and do what you're doing, they'd be like, dry, they would do it in a heartbeat. And, uh, and so you can imagine, you know, we're as only as good as our leadership, right? You can imagine what the rest of the church is like. And, uh, and really, the, ch- the place is suffering because of leadership is poor and training is poor. And, uh, you know, it's funny because for me, I've been given a whole denomination to help with vision and training. Why? <laughs> you know? And uh, sometimes I'm like, why am I? They don't hardly even know me. Why am I giving the vision for this denomination? The problem is, is there's nobody who knows. And that training is so few and so little that uh, that it's it's really um, that there's just a need of, for training and really we can have a huge influence by training these guys but spiritually so weak but so longing and uh, in, in my own testimony as a young kid I was so weak but so longing and you know what no one was there to teach me and uh, I would go out and say can you disciple me discipleship what's that you know. And, uh, and I just said to myself growing up, and I went through the journey of just opening my Bible, trying to find out what it says, and growing. And, uh, and in the process, I said, I want to make sure that anyone who wants discipleship in the future can get it. And, uh, and so, uh, so that the spiritual condition is so weak, but really so longing. And as they start growing, it just starts sprouting and, and uh, with, quickly. So, I don't know, I addressed it quickly, right? Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering, with your training that you're doing with the pastors and kind of the leaders, are you guys specifically targeting just Uganda, or are you trying to go to other nations around, uh, just within the area? You know what, right now we're targeting Uganda, and uh, Uganda is the size of Oregon, and so it can be be reached for the cause of Christ, and uh, obviously, right now just Uganda, I would assume that as the schools open, if there's pastors that want to come from other areas, we would be willing, Um, but right now our mission is Uganda. And uh, when it comes to community, our desire is not to reach all of Uganda and our community, just our little village of Kubamitwe. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're very strategic and very focused on just, just those areas. However, um, you know, we have, we're, we're always willing to, if we can influence, you know, other areas um, after we feel like we're, we've gotten a grip on ours, then, then we'd be open to that. But our focus is really just Uganda at this point. Though, if you, know, so if you had some friend in Tanzania and he wanted to come, we'd obviously uh, be willing to do that. So. You don't have anyone in Tanzania, right? I married into a, basically the head of a, uh, like the EVC within Africa who lives in Tanzania. Really? That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, sometimes people ask us questions because, because there, there is some. But if you know some people... Uh, especially once we get the school up and running, that'd be more than more than cool. So uh, you know, if you you know know the president there and you're like in the Tanzania mafia, yeah, no, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, as we get up and we get running, absolutely would love to take certain individuals. Just our focus is not there. Our focus is is right there. And Uganda is unique. Uh, they've been under Idi Amin. They've been under some terrible um, dictatorships, and really, there's a preserving of the people and a sweetness of them. And the Western world has been left out. It's coming in more and more, and you're like cringing, you know. But uh, and the Muslims are coming in to where the light that's shined there for so many years is becoming darker and darker. And if we don't get in there with the truth 
and fight off the, the, the darkness, we're, we're going to lose Uganda. But right now, it's such a beautiful country with such open, beautiful people. So uh, that's cool. We'll have to talk later about this. So there's a, there's a huge door um, for the gospel where you are, and people uh, obviously have a, a, a desire for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm imagining that the challenges that come along with that are very different than what you get here. Uh, could you talk about that? Absolutely. You know, the, the challenges, uh, first and forth, foremost, are, are, are the biggest challenge is me. You know? It's always that, right? That's why we go first to our own hearts. But it's always me. You know, we're such uh, bent toward love of self. We're such bent toward uh, self-exaltation that the, the first challenge is me. And that just getting out of the way, continuously being humble and, 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 and open toward people. You know, the first challenge is always me. Um, Ministry-wise, the challenge is, is people who want you for what you can give them uh, monetarily or, or socially. Because once someone becomes a friend with me, they're friends with the Mzungu, they become Mzungu, which is a white person. They become the, a part of the big man. I'm seen as being an ambassador in the country. And, you know, I walk into a, a room and you know, everything stops and you know, they need to introduce me. You know, and um, and that's just the way the culture works. You, you you give respect to the big man, and a white person's a big man because he's opportunity. So people come because of what you can give them, when it's not what you want to give them. If you understand what I'm saying. Um, so that would probably be one of the bigger challenges. You know, just disingenuine love. Uh, you know, God in His grace has blessed us. Though we have a team of about ten. Ugandans who are there, who are around me that protect me from that stuff and they're discerning everybody before they come in, come through and and we just let them hang out for a while and people who have interest in money they usually want it quickly and to get out and uh, and so we let them just hang out for a while and they get frustrated and and uh, it starts bleeding through and and then you say see you later um, you know but um, those are two the biggest challenges I think as well challenge wise is how to build a team. Um, you know, because building a team always takes time. Americans, we want to come in, shoop, come out, shoop, you know, and uh, I mean, we're just microwave, you know, five minutes here, and <clears throat> building a team takes a, a long time, and God has been very gracious to us, but, uh, and as well as you build a team, you need to know you're going to build on yourself, so you have to spread your knowledge and, 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 and grow ahead of them, and uh, once they catch up to you, then you have nothing else to give to them, so um, you know, so I'm trying to just grow as as, as I can, in the, you know, in that regard. But I'd say the other challenge is financial. We are unique in in uh, in Uganda in that uh, there's so many people that want to be fed and want to be trained. Well, you need, you know, if they want, if they come to your home, they're going to stay there until you know. It's not if someone travels from the east here, they don't have a car to go back, you know, so they come and they stay with you, well, that costs money, you know, or you do a conference where for 400 pastors, they come, well, they're going to come and they're going to stay there that whole week, you know, and uh, they're not coming with, you know, they're not going to pay $60 or 350 like you do for Shepherd's Conference, you know, and, uh, you know, they're they're going to come with empty pockets and, 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 and have given everything they had just to get there. You know, and so uh, so then you know, so th- the cost of, of ministry is expensive, 
And so really our, our, our limitations are those things, you know, financial and, uh, and, and, and these things, and, and just building, building leadership and a team around us, which is really, that's our focus right now, is building a team of national people. And again, God has, has blessed us. But as well, you know, we, we do want to see um, people come and help with the Bible school one day and, uh, and the like. But I would even say to the African-American people here, uh, go back to Africa. See how God's blessed you. And in the mystery of God, he used, and he always does this, he uses trial and tragedy to bring grace. And, uh, and you look at the, the Holocaust, terrible event. But he did that to make them a nation in Israel today. You look at uh, the, the racism that's gone on in this country, terrible. But look where you are today. Go back and see what your roots are like. And uh, see the tragedy that goes on in the rest of the world. And, uh, and realize how much God's richly blessed you. And, uh, and how much responsibility that gives you to then have an impact in those, you're in those countries and, and whatnot. If I'm allowed to say that. And so... Uh, and, and I even, uh, I, I won't go there, but uh, anyhow, uh, any other questions? I just was terribly curious where you were going. What's that? He was talking about bushes a little while ago. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just, yeah, I, I'll talk to the African community later. You know, I, you have a heart for the Africans, and I know even in this country, Africans struggle. And they struggle often with their own people to allow them to have the wings to fly, and uh, and and you know, and I think I think you know, not politically, I don't agree with Obama at all, but I'm just so glad to see Obama as a president of the United States of America, and I hope that that releases the African people to where they feel like you know, I have opportunity, let me utilize it, and uh, and uh, I I one thing I struggles with I struggle with is. You know, I was in Georgia and I went to a basketball game, and just to see um, how pe- just people—and that's just probably in general—but I, you know, I just want to see people be real. And the African people in Africa are so sweet, so kind, so um, endearing. And uh, and sometimes there's this facade of uh, of cool, and you can never get to the real. And uh, and uh, anyhow, but uh, it's a beautiful day, I think, as far as that aspect within America. And I, I just pray that um, more leaders rise up in, in that regard. But anyhow, did I communicate that? You have to always be touchy with some of those things. But do I communicate that satisfy your curiosity? Okay, good. I'm curious. It gets me in trouble. My wife tells me, curious George got in a lot of trouble because of these things. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, can you can you explain or describe a little bit? You can talk about you have a model. You want to model the church yeah. for them. What does that look like for you guys? Can you talk talk about the, your church or what you're aiming for? Absolutely, everything comes out of the local church, hands down. Paul went and he built his church. Uh, you know, so with that, you know, the goal is is to have a church that models everything that we are about. And uh, and and you know to where um, to where when it comes to the community activities, it's coming out of that local church. The lo- people in the church are are, are do- helping with the movie nights and, and those things, and we know that it's gospel oriented. 
you know, and uh, and even the biblical. Th- we wanted a church that's going to be there, that's going to model for the community what a pastor is to be, what a church is to be. They need to see that, and uh, and so in that regard, that's what we're we're trying to accomplish in that. And uh, you know, in our biblical training, you know, the church is is right there, kind of like a grace community where you have the church there to model what what you know what it is we want to accomplish and uh, you know and, and even you know they're they're able to be part of that church they're able to function in that church and see however what we want to make sure accomplishes in that church is they don't become the leadership of that church the leadership is people that are not necessarily bible trained people from that school, but they're people that are in that community who've been built up and discipled and are now involved in the community and uh, in the church. And they, they come and they watch and participate, but they don't become the church. And, uh, you know, but the whole ministry tries to flow out of the, out of the local church as much as, much as possible without it being, um, without it being uh, suffocated by by the, the, you know, the, the problem you have in Africa, you have a nation that is untrained, you know, and literally are, you have we have a, putting a school together that's going to have the, the strategic and, and, and nature in which we want to accomplish. We can have such a huge influence. And the one question we want to make sure is that the church doesn't get swallowed up in the school. But but the, but there's a. a um, but the church becomes the model for everything that we want to do, and the ministry to that that community flows out of that church and is able to model to that church what what we're to be. And uh, I don't know if that did that make sense. Yeah. What's um, yeah. What's did you start the church that you're in? Was it already an existing church? What's your role in the church? Does it have a name? What, just describe yeah. it for us so we can get a picture Absolutely. of Absolutely. Like. Um, well, we've just moved to a new community. And this community, as I said, is rural. It's like way deep in the bush. You know, people, when you say that you live in Kuba Mitwe, you know, uh, which means literally hit the head in Uganda. Uh, they used to do they, they used to do executions, actually, in our area. They used to hit the head, the guy was dead. It was the area in which uh, Museveni, who's the current pastor, uh, not pastor, he's the current uh, president, was um, was in power. He had all his troops hid in, in our village. There was a tremendous tr- uh, trouble that was brought to, to people. People would, the troops would you know, do what troops do and, and just corruption and, and immorality in that whole area. Um, so we, that's the area that we actually are in. But uh, you know, across from us is the Gospel Power Center, um, and uh, and an Anglican church. And uh, what we've done is we've tried to come alongside those churches. I invited the pastors to come to a conference. The problem we had when we invited the pastor to come to the conference is we took them with some of the people in the community, and as we were there, we're teaching about taking through the Book of Jude, and uh, the people that came from the community began to say, "Hey, you're a false teacher." You know, to the pastor that was there, so that created a little bit of tension for him. That <laughs> uh, you know, and so um, you know, so what we, you know, and, and basically his response is, I want to do what's right. The problem is, is I have these Americans who put paid for this building, putting pressure on me, and these types of things. And so, you know, I haven't engaged in much conversation. I first, we'd love to come alongside those those churches there. However, most likely that won't be able to be the case, and so. What we're now that we're there, we're, 
you know, basically people that people that came from the community said, Shannon, we have a problem. Uh, we don't know what church to go to. You know, there's no church that teaches the Bible. And so with that, we want to start, we'll start our own church in that community, as well as trying to encourage the, 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 the community pastor. We're trying to figure out the specifics of what that looks like. But, you know, we'll put up like some uh, African-looking, uh, uh, I forget what they could, um, you know, like straw type thing, you know, some cool looking African thing where we can meet and have church in initially until we, we build that local church. But, you know, um, I'm trying to think specifically how to answer the question. Um, that, so you're in the process of really trying to see a church really come into fruition from which all this can flow out and right. back into. But, but, but you had a church in Wakona. We had a church and we just moved. And, and frankly, the focus right now in our ministry consists of those conferences, and that will take place for the next six years. In the midst of that, we're... We're planning that church, and we're having an influence. In, in like right now, I, people, my team in Uganda, they're visiting all the homes in our village, building relationships with those people, and they're finding out, you know, what just what the, where the heart is and what's going on, and and different things like that. And when we start a church, these people will all come, and we'll just begin to meet. And we have elders that we've been building in the process, so that as we're there, boom, the eldership is established. And then, and then the churches grow. So the next six years, we're building that church, and uh, so that it can. And, and I, when I say model church, I think what I, my, we're never a model church. We always have weaknesses, right? And but what we want to do is model the biblical principles set forth in the Word of God as to what He wants His church to be. And uh, hopefully, within the next six years, we'll be establishing that. But, uh, uh, so. Any final question? I want to be sensitive to time. Guys, let's, let's do this if you want. Um, we can, we'll close things up, but if you want to stand around and talk a little bit with Shannon for a few minutes. The owners are going to meet with him um, next, so you've got limited time, but we'd love to let you continue. If you have a couple questions you'd like to um, bring to him, is that all right? Tom, anything that you or Smith that you want to draw before we wrap up four minutes? Okay. Well, I'd love to pray for you. Can okay, cool. do that, and then we'll let him, we'll throw him to the wolves. Okay, <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, what you're doing in uh, Uganda. Thank you for um, the gospel that is there. Thank you for the precious ones who are there who believe it and who have been transformed by it, who love you because of it, and who love their neighbors because of it. And I pray that you would raise up a strong church. Um, that you would use your servant Shannon to do that, um, that he would uh, be faithful to you, that he would depend upon you, and that he would see you providing every need that he has. Also that Ugandans might know you and love you and proclaim you um, to the ends of the earth. Um, so God, thanks for our time together. Thank you for what he has shared, and pray that you would um, just give him a safe travel back uh, with his family in California, and then eventually back um, in uh, Uganda as well. Thanks for our time together, Lord. You're great and you're awesome. We love you and um, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.